Hello, this is Rich Potter, and welcome to the What's So Funny podcast. Well, here we are again. Welcome back. So here we are at another Wednesday, or probably out there in podcast land, it's closer to a Thursday. I realize as I'm doing this that I am a chronic procrastinator, and I'm trying to get myself on a better schedule and... Doing this weekly podcast is actually getting me on a better schedule. But generally speaking, I have to do some preliminary work on Tuesday, and then I record on Wednesday, and then by the time it gets to the Apple podcast, blah blah whatever that's called, it usually gets released a few hours later to up to 12 hours later in some cases. So Wednesday podcast generally gets released on Thursday. So I hope that's not a major inconvenience to any of you out there in podcast land. And I guess if I get enough concerned emails from people anxiously awaiting my Wednesday release, I will try to up my game, up my schedule. But until then, this is something I'm doing for fun, and uh, hopefully it's fun for you. I just hope everyone's happy, because I'm doing fine as it is. In any case, last week I spoke about some of my experiences in 2018 at the Maryland Renaissance Festival, and I realized over the last 35 years, since I was in 10th grade, and don't do the math, it is kind of disheartening for me, but I have served in various capacities over that time, and I haven't worked at that fair every single year, but I have worked probably, I'd say, roughly half of those years, so maybe about 17. So last week I alluded to me telling some of the stories of those last 35 years, uh, my active years at the fair, and I understand one of the best places to start is at the beginning. At the beginning, I was a pimply-faced teenager. This is how many people get started at the Renaissance Fair. We show up in our teen years and become enamored of the place and try to figure out how we can get in for free. And that means taking part in it, doing some sort of useful job. And most of the people who do go that route find out that they get in for free, but there's actual work. And a very small number of the teenagers actually decide that they want to do the work because they want to be part of it and a very small subset of them actually go the long haul. Many of us take years off. Uh, many of us serve many roles, and this is just my story. So at the dawn of my experience with the Renaissance Fair, I had been involved in a group that one could describe as medieval recreation, but it wasn't quite medieval recreation. It was kind of swords and sorcery. There was kind of a Uh, magic component to it, but mostly it was just a bunch of us teenagers dressing up in mom's tablecloth and putting some foam insulation on a stick and then going out in the woods and beating on each other. If you ever saw the movie Role Models with it was with Paul Rudd and Sean William Scott, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's, It's basically there's a sport created by nerds for nerds. It's basically taking Dungeons and Dragons and putting it on its feet and going into the woods and actually smelling what the outdoors are like. It was sword fighting. It was teamwork. It was organized pillow fights. Now, our group, it was called Imarthengarth. I don't know where the name came from. I don't know what its 
etymology is. It was a newish group. It was splintered off uh, another group, which splintered off another group. And this is just where I came in. This was in the early days of the Maryland Renaissance Festival. It was maybe the, I want to say the ninth year, maybe even less. And they were still at the old site. It was a rented site. And it, every year they had to set up the Renaissance Fair and then tear it all down. So it was like in the early years, this is how most Renaissance Fairs start, is they start at a, a place where they do things temporarily, see if the business works, and then they buy some land or they get some land, a long-term lease on some land so that they can keep things up permanently and you get a better Renaissance Fair out of it. But this was back in the days where it was kind of slapdash thrown together, a bunch of lean-tos and little uh, rickety things set, set up that were not expected to last more than six weekends. And one of those little rinky-dink little tents that was set up was the Amarthengarth booth. It was a recruitment sign-up booth, and we were trying to get more to our ranks so we could have better, bigger battles and bigger wars and more people showing up on the weekends to do the pillow fighting. <laughs> My friend Bob and I discovered that if we volunteered to help at the booth, we could get into the Renaissance Fair for free. This was my introduction to it. For the first time in my life, I was surrounded by jugglers and magicians. Uh, Penn and Teller were actually there on the lineup that year. This is how, how long ago that was when they were stu still doing Renaissance fairs. There were rope walkers, fire eaters. There was jousting on horseback, sword fighters, sword swallowers, mud beggars, a rat catcher. I wanted to be one of them. They were fun. They were exciting. They were funny. And everyone loved them. This was an amazing thing to me in my 16-year-old eyes. Bob dressed in a red tunic that his mom had sewn for him, and uh, he, he decided that he was going to wear a turban, even though he was a blonde-haired, Anglo-looking, blue-eyed kid. And me, I wore my mom's tablecloth with a hole cut in the middle. It didn't go down far enough, so I needed something for my lower body. And uh, I went to the thrift store and got a leopard skin. Uh, it was a faux leopard skin coat, like a winter coat, left over from the 1970s, certainly. And I cut off the bottom part and made kind of a, a skirt out of it. So it was, as some friends later called it, it was a leopard skin mini skirt. Bob decided at one point to stand in front of our little tent slash booth and start yelling stupid things out of the people walking by. I thought that was kind of cool. It was a thing to do. So I stood like on the other side of the entrance from him and I started yelling stupid stuff too. As stupid as we looked, I, like my costume, my outfit, it was brown tablecloth, leopard skin mini skirt. I tied some cloth around my shins to kind of simulate boots. And at the bottom were my bright blue Adidas running shoes. <laughs> so we yelled stupid stuff. We looked kind of stupid. And our recruitment numbers quadrupled. It apparently was very successful for us to stand out there yelling stupid stuff. We got to interact with people. We got to flirt with girls. That was amazing. I was enjoying this. It was fascinating. Different people passed by. Every now and then someone would pass by with some alcohol and they'd share it with us. And we were like amazed that people we, we could get free booze just by yelling things. And one day, and like the second or third weekend we were there, from across the way at another of these booths, I heard a shriek of a shrill male voice screaming, KILL! And I looked in the direction, I saw a man, a, kind of a silhouetted figure, coming my way, coming our way, yelling, KILL! And as he got closer, it was a guy with long brown wavy hair, like down past his shoulders. 
a long skinny nose, topping a, a wide curly mustache, crazed eyes. He wore a doublet, pumpkin pants, and if you don't know what pumpkin pants are, they're they're actually called slops, but they're those Renaissance breeches that come halfway down your thigh. They're kind of shaped like pumpkins. And he, he was wearing tights on his long, skinny, gangly legs. And his legs were like, his knees were coming up ar- around his ears as he bounded towards us. And he just kept screaming, kill, destroy. And he ran into the booth, grabbed one of our little pillow swords and started swinging it wildly at me. He jabbed me, jabbed Bob, jabbed me again. And so I ran inside and grabbed one of the pillow swords and now there are rules to our combat of a Marth and Garth, but he didn't seem like the sort of person who was interested in rules. So we just swung our swords, parried and thrusted and weaved and bobbed. And eventually he raised his hands up, so his sword poised above his head, ready to come down on me with a fury of cold, heavy bladed steel colored duct tape. And I swung sideways and I cleaved him in half at his rib cage. So he shrieked, I am slain, I am slain. And he staggered this way, staggered that way, and, and then he mimed blood squirting out of every orifice. He spun around and then fell down in the grass, dead. And that is how I met Patch Adams. Yes, he, he used to work at the Maryland Renaissance Fair. I think his booth, they sold Renaissance clothing, probably making money for his hospital. This is back in the 80s, before he was, before he was as famous as he is now, way before the movie with Robin Williams. Pretty much all I found out about him is he, he ran a free hospital in West Virginia, uh, and people talked about him as if anyone had a medical problem beyond what the folks at the first aid place could handle. There was a doctor on site. To me, it's kind of funny because he was the first adult clown I actually met in my life, but I didn't know he was a clown for years after that when I saw a Washington Post article about him, and the photo was of him juggling and walking a slack rope. He didn't mention any of that when he was trying to kill me, just that he was a doctor. So anyway, the next year, I wanted to get more involved in being a performer rather than just being someone standing in front of a booth yelling stupid things. Bob wanted to as well. There were some other friends involved as well. So there were six of us with very little vision, no performing experience or almost no performing experience, but knowing that I wanted to be an entertainer, a clown, comedian, whatever. I I wanted to be Steve Martin or a circus clown or whatever. I went through the phone book. I found the phone number for the Renaissance Festival. I called the performance director and I asked him for a job, telling him that me and five of my friends had formed a performing troupe. Of the six of us, Bob and I had the most performing experience, which was almost zero. I figured we could get the job first and work on the details later. If I could just get the performance director to believe that we actually knew what we were doing. Um, In my 16-year-old mind, I believe that was possible that grown-ups could be snowed that easily. Sometimes I wish I still had that level of motivated ignorance now, but unfortunately I know how the world works and it forms a lead weight on my soul. (laughs) So now I actually feel like I have to know the rules and follow the rules to get into these sorts of things but as a 16 year old it was a massive example of the dunning-kruger effect so as things turned out we didn't quite get exactly what i was asking for but i don't really remember what i was asking for i know it was kind of ludicrous and ignorant but somehow bob got cast in the commedia dell'arte show playing zani and i got the job of a stage manager So I was stage manager for this play. I got to help people run lines. I uh, was there at every rehearsal. There was a prop 
a shovel that was kept at the head office trailer that I had to go from the stage all the way to the trailer and then bring it to and from the stage every day so that there was a scene where some of the characters dug into the stage. They were digging down, digging down, and eventually the devil pops his head out of a trap door, which was kind of fun. For years, I thought the job of a stage manager was to just go to and from the office and pick up props to get the shovel. And the rest of the time when this play was not being performed, it was three acts being performed in three different time slots during the day. I hung out with the queen and the rest of the court. We traveled around to various scenes. Uh, there were three jousts during the day, so uh, hung out with the royalty and went hooray, or I went huzzah when someone got slammed off a horse. Uh, I got to flirt with the girls in the court as well. There were a lot of teenagers who were just warm bodies in exquisite outfits that they liked to use to dress the set. Things are very different now, and it seems like everyone in the court is a professional actor, but at that point, teenagers in costumes were uh, were very useful to the production so in this in around the fifth weekend of the six weekend fair there was news that we got extended to seven weekends that year and the guy playing pantalone in the commedia play couldn't make the seventh weekend i knew all the lines so the last time i'd been on stage had been probably third grade yeah, I did some little bits of clowns, clowning at festivals and stuff, but I had not actually played a role on stage since I was in third grade and I played the role of Gabby Garbage in some play about the environment. To this day, the playwright is unknown. Uh, David Mamet, perhaps. I got to play Pantaloni in this one day. I think I did two of the three acts. I, I think the guy could make the morning. But I was there... And I, I made it through. I, I really, I had no idea how to act. How, I didn't know how acting worked. I, I knew the, the part where you remember the lines and you stand in a certain place. And I knew how to copy, like, the character that he put forth because I'd been backstage watching the show for the entire run. I have no idea whether or not I got laughs, but I got through it saying most of the words and usually standing in the right place sometimes uh the character the the wife character flaminia she would uh, grab my sleeve and kind of put me in the right place if i needed it i don't even remember enjoying it i just remember being on stage and getting through it because i was terrified but i'm glad i did it now if you know anything about commedia you know that pantalone is the older merchant character he's usually a geriatric and uh, he's of the upper class and kind of very conceited. I was not a septuagenarian. I was a 16-year-old. I was not full of myself, quite the opposite. I was a young kid with very low self-esteem trying to portray the opposite of who I was. But fortunately, there was the Commedia mask, which covered two-thirds of my face, and I was able to fake it fairly well and even if I sucked, no one was going to tell me I sucked because I didn't talk to the audience after and all my castmates were very supportive. I know I didn't die. <laughs> and that's a, that's a step forward. Uh, from, from that point forward, I don't think I... I think the next time I did theater... No, I did a couple of plays in high school. And then after that, I did not get back on stage for another 20 plus years. So this was my second year with the fair. The whole time, I wanted to be the court jester. I wanted to have the Captain Bells. I wanted the, you know, the big curly cue things out of my head. I wanted the party-colored tunic. I, I wanted to be that character. They had this beautiful purple outfit that was probably 10 years old and had been sweated in and ripped and torn and uh, faded from the sun. And I wanted that outfit. 
in my third year at the fair, I was able to get the performance director to allow me to embody that role. Now, embodying that role just meant I filled the costume. I was a teenager in that suit. There was no actual job for me to do other than wander around and try not to offend people. (laughs) I could juggle. That was about it. And I found that juggling alone is not funny. It's something jesters might do, but I was not getting laughs from juggling. And the wonderful thing about working at a festival is you get to have hundreds, if not thousands, of interactions with people every day. They were short experiments, sometimes 30 seconds or less. Sometimes it was just me walking by a person or a group of people and look them in the eye and say, blah, which evoked a laugh. Looking like I looked, making that sound... I guess it was unexpected. It was a quick, easy laugh. It was not clever, but it got the job done and it got me a little bit out of my shell because I I knew I wanted to perform and I knew that I could make people in my class laugh at school, but I had not had a whole lot of real life experience and I had no idea how to develop material. So this was kind of good for me. So I had the two things going for me. I could juggle three balls and I could say, bleh. I also, since I carried three balls around with me, was able to make a number of dick jokes. It, well, ball jokes, but, you know, uh, it, it's a category of jokes that in, involves all the different parts down there. I guess I don't tell too many prostate jokes, but occasionally one slips out. Running the thousands of experiments that I did, little interactions with people, I built up at least a confidence moving forward and developing a show which debuted the following year. And it was absolutely terrible because, again, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to learn how to do what I was doing. And any joke book I took out had really dated horrible jokes, so I figured I might as well tell my own jokes and... My own jokes were, at least they were mine, but they were terrible. It was also a time when they were still allowing street-style variety acts. In my fourth year, I had a number of slots where I was supposed to perform on the street, but I had to learn how to gather a crowd. And then once I gathered a crowd, I had to learn how to make them stay. And I don't think I finished that season having understood that skill. Because again, I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know where to find out and I was afraid to ask for help. I guess one thing that I found out of this is looking back, if I had a time machine and I was two people, I could go back and tell myself that it's okay to ask for help and if someone says no, they won't help you, then ask someone else. Also, there was a library and I could have gone through books. Now, we didn't have... YouTube back then. We didn't have internet and it was actually hard. We didn't have a VCR for a long time. So it was hard to get access to other people's acts to see how they do it. All I had was the acts that I'd seen at the Renaissance Fair. So over time, I started stealing a joke here, a joke there. <laughs> and that became my act over time. And I think like a folk singer, or like a singer-songwriter, you learn how to make your music by playing other people's songs, and eventually 
once you learn the principles of that, you are able to write your own songs. I think a beginning comic will often rip off other comics. I see this especially among variety entertainers. You kind of start out thinking you, you know, they're telling that joke and uh, it gets a laugh, so you take it off them and put it in your show and it gets a laugh. And after a while, you, if you have any integrity, it starts to feel cheap. <laughs> and you start writing your own stuff. But this was my first year with actual time where I'm supposed to do a show and perform for people. I hadn't even had the time to steal enough material to have a good show. So I was doing what I thought I could do with the lack of discipline and the lack of education that I had. And it worked out okay. I got a little bit of experience. I failed a lot. I learned a lot of what I shouldn't have been doing. And it moved me forward. So that's four years in a nutshell. I didn't want this podcast to become a memoir. So I'm going to move on to other topics in the next couple of weeks. But I may come back to it. There's a few more weekends of the Renaissance Fair. And there's plenty to talk about there. Hope this has been interesting. Drop me a line in the comments if you're if you have a question or a comment or if you just want to say I'm enjoying the podcast. If you know somebody like a beginning variety artist who might be interested in one person's journey, send them the link. Thanks and I'll see you on the flip side. This has been the What's So Funny podcast with Rich Potter. Thanks for tuning in. New episodes on Wednesdays.